Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. Yeah, I, I want to. Uh, I need at least two two sessions to do what um, I want to talk about. Some of it, again, will be stuff that you have heard, either completely or partially. But that's what education is all about. You know, you you haven't learned it until you can repeat it. Okay, you didn't learn it because you were in the class. You've only learned it when you can actually repeat it, or even better, when you actually know what to do with it. Okay, so there are different levels. So my hope is that um, most of you will at least learn it and a good proportion of you will, will figure out what you're supposed to do with it. Um, but it needs, we, we need to understand this stuff because it's so much a part of who we are as a house. And um, one of the great challenges we face, just as an aside, b- before we start that, is um, I was thinking today, it's really on my heart, nobody puts new, no man, Jesus said, puts new wine in an old wineskin, because if he does, the wineskin bursts and the wine and the skin are lost. The greatest challenge we face, because of our um, insatiable appetite for um, fresh understanding and fresh knowledge, is, is the frequency with which we need a new wineskin. And um, we probably haven't done that as well as, as we ought to be doing or should be doing because um, you understand the wineskin is the container that you put around the wine, so that it's capable of getting the wine where the wine needs to go. And um, I think we've probably put a lot of focus on the quality of the wine, which I think is excellent, because we are developing new vintages, which, which you know, I am now basically selling around the world um, and affecting the taste, but, but here at home in the rock, um, we, it would be sad if this, which is the laboratory for all that, uh, diminishes to a point where we can't do all that. I believe we will have failed in, in what God has called us to then. So it, it's for us and it's for you to make sure that we sustain the laboratory. Okay. Um, I don't know if you're aware, but um, a lot of university funding comes from research grants. So the more university can use its faculty and its students in research, the greater the potential for income for the university, which then allows the university to progress and grow. So York University, for example, um, has has, uh, excellent research departments that are world famous, and it brings a lot of funding in because of the research. Now, of course, the issue is they have to get people interested in the research that they're doing. So part of our role Uh, When you wonder about what should we do, because we've been set free from all the stuff that if you don't witness to Fred, you know, he's going to hell tomorrow. And um, we have to sustain this. We have to sustain this because we are researching, we are thinking things that are becoming alive in the body of Christ. but, But the popular branch of the church will never do it because they have too much to risk. So there are some places that um, I am not invited regularly or some places I don't get to go back at all, um, um, which again sounds like I might be you know, making excuses, but the truth is 
um, they realize that to expose their congregation to some of the thoughts that we wrestle with, they're afraid of that because they're afraid. Now, to me, that's chicken, okay? Because uh, what it's saying is that we are then maintaining a congregation and we keep in the dark because if we were to present certain ideas to them, they would leave. I, I don't think that makes good church. I think it makes a mockery of the body of Christ. I think it makes a mockery of the life of Jesus. I think we have to be up front and out front and saying what we mean and meaning what we say. But that, that requires um, a higher strength of humanity. Okay? Um, I'm proposing that you have that. What I'm asking is that we become more and more infectious in that <clears throat> so that we can encourage people on the journey that, uh, that not only that we are on, but I, b I believe is, is God-ordained and I believe it's got the touch of God upon it. And uh, of course it's different because if it wasn't different, it would be the same, wouldn't it? And who wants to be same? So, so there you go. So that, that's part of our challenge. So... Um, I didn't know what to title what I'm talking about because some of it you've seen me do some of it, but um, I called it the line between truth and not truth, which, which sounds funny because um, it's like, well, isn't it the line between truth and a lie? But the thing is, there, are some, there is some truth on the side of the line that is not truth. It's just that it's not the whole truth so, to some degree, some of it might as well be a lie, but it's not that it's totally wrong, it's just that it's not totally truth, okay? Now, I'll propose you another thought on that. You can have something that's totally right, but it's not the truth. In that it's right, it's an observationally, and factually seems right, but it's not necessarily the truth. So, so we're kind of wrestling with, um, uh, with this line. So, tonight I'm going to, basically lay some things out on the board. We'll take, we'll take pictures of it so that we have a, a record of it. Um, and um, we won't get all the way through, so what I want to do, um, Amy listening in the front, is whatever we had planned for, not next Wednesday, but the Wednesday after, is not happening because I'm happening, okay? Um, because I want to do, do the second part of this in which... Um, we get to grips with some more um, poignant thoughts about about the cross, about Christ, about redemption, about blood, which of course is an important part of Scripture. So I'll try not to go on too long uh, tonight. I've been in seminar situations where I'm given as much time as I want with whoever I want. That's dangerous because um, you know it, it means you you can go long, so you do go long, and then it's. Um, it's hard sometimes to rein it back in. So, let, let's just revisit um, where we were last time we talked. There are basically three kinds of church. When you break everything down, the first one is empirical. I'm not going to write these on the board because I want to leave it clean for what I'm about to do. The first one is empirical, okay? Because the word from empire. Empirical is based on a person. Okay, that's an empirical church. So wherever you see a church that's based on a person, if you lose the person, you lose the church. And where you see the tight grip of control, that everything is under the control of the person, that's empirical. Okay? That's the same as Roman Empire with the Caesar or British Empire, whatever it is, that's an empirical church. The second kind of church is the corporate church. 
So empirical is based on a person. Corporate is based on a system. Now, corporate works similar to empirical in that the control mechanisms are just as strong. Um, but it looks a little bit different. So I would say in many ways, corporate has become the modern form of empirical. So we try not to make it look like it's an empire built around a person. And so what we do is we create a corporation, the church corporation, that's based on a system. Of course, within that, you've got key performance indicators, and it's all about market share is everything. So, um, you know, the church growth thing is big. Now, something you may not know about, for example, church growth, because I, I um, not having the capacity personally for a large church, uh, which I don't. My capacity is about 300. I mean, I, I know that. I've learned that over the years. Um, you say, what do you mean by that? Can't everybody have an indefinite capacity? Not really, you know. A Boeing 737 takes less passengers than a Boeing 767 because that's, it's, the way it's structured just takes less passengers and when it's full, it's full. And likewise, I, I honestly believe that, that all of us have um, capacity. One, one of the, the ways it was put in um, the book of Exodus was captains of tens and captains of hundreds and captains of thousands. So it was even recognized way back in Exodus that we have capacities. I, I don't have any claims that, that I could ever... Now, I mean, God might prove me wrong. I'm very happy if he does. Um, you know, I don't know that I could ever run a church of a thousand people because... Um, well, I just can't do the things that it takes to... And that's not just managerial and organizationally. I'd, I'd cause too much trouble. Um, uh, not because I'm particularly a trouble causer, but just because of what I want to say doesn't always... There's a certain thing you have to do. If you want lots and lots of people, you have to cater to that. And that's not what I'm called to do. I, no disrespect to people who are. They do it well, and it's fabulous, and I'm delighted... Um, but that's not us. However, one of, one of the things you do need to know is that is that um, that eighty percent of churches across the world have less than have less than fifty people. Eighty percent across the world. Ninety percent of churches across the world are two hundred people or less. That's ninety percent. Okay. So. What always baffles me is if 90% of churches are 200 people or less, if 80% of those are 80 people or less, uh, 50 people or less, why when we have conferences do we bring people in who have 10,000 or more? Makes no sense to me. Um, and I know most pastors who attend those conferences get a real buzz at the conference and then they go back to church on Sunday morning. And they look out across the congregation. And do you know what they feel? It's not faith and excitement and exuberance. It's failure. They feel worthless failures. Well, look, I've just been in that. I've just heard somebody speak about the tens of thousands of people and all the campuses they have. And been in the atmosphere of all this wonderful thing. And then come back to their 50, 80, 100, 150 people. And most of them feel like a complete failure. Um, that's why I try to encourage congregations as well. Love your pastor. Okay, um, because that's one of their specific things that they wrestle with, particularly with certain pressures um, that are on them. And, uh, you know, sometimes it can be tough because we don't realize that actually the majority of churches are 
what some would term as small, but actually small is the wrong term. They are what they are within the community that they're in. The other interesting statistic is that, in essence, the biggest churches are mostly in villages. Now, I want you to think about that one for a moment. So if there's 2,000 people in a village and you have 50 people in your church, or you have a church, let's say, in Sheffield, so you have a catchment of 850,000, a million people, and you have 1,000 people, who's got the biggest church? The one with 50 in the village has the higher proportion of people. So even all our understanding of that all gets a little bit screwed up and misplaced. So, so I'm saying this so we can recognize that, that the corporate model um, is very attractive because it promises, it promises success. It, you know, do these seven things and do whatever and you'll get X, Y, and Z. That's a very corporate model that's built on a, um, a kind of um, success system that's more akin to industry than it actually is to the kingdom of God. Now, please understand me. I, I, I have friends who pastor large churches and I think there's absolutely a place for them and they should exist and I thank God for everything that they do, but we should let them be in their own context and understand that we in our context have to be who we are. So empirical is based on a person, corporate is based on a system. The third type of church is organic or incarnational. Of course, incarnational literally means in flesh, okay? So, so God incarnate is when God lives in flesh, in us. So the third kind of church, which every church in essence should be, but every church isn't, is organic or incarnational. Now, if empirical is based on a person, corporate is based on a system, but organic or incarnational is based on a process. So in an incarnational church, you realize that you have entered a process and you are a part of a process that is not based on key performance indicators or targets, but it's actually based on are we really being obedient to where God has brought us to? Are we responding to what we are hearing and learning? Are we bringing that into our lives? And are we together growing, even though we don't always know what it is that this will look like? See, one thing about empirical and corporate is before anything ever starts, there is a clear design on what this thing has to look like. Therefore, it can never go outside those parameters. In the organic or um, incarnational church, that can't be fully defined because it will be what it is according to how we respond to what we are receiving and what we are learning. So um, uh, it's about living and growing then within, within the context. Now, uh, I always ask a question now when I've taught this several times, which is, how old was Jesus when he was born? It's a good question. How old was Jesus when he was born? So he wasn't, he wasn't the 30-year-old, baptized, identity-secure, miracle-working savior that we're introduced to in most of the Gospels. In fact, we have some record of Mary's pregnancy and therefore his pre-birth. We have information about his birth. We have a little information then about them becoming refugees in Egypt because Herod wanted to kill all the babies 
under two. We know that he came back to Nazareth, which is where he was raised. And then we have nothing until he's 12 years of age, when it's his bar mitzvah. So we get a little window then that, that he's taken, you know, and to the to the um, to the to the the temple, and he's talking with the with the professors in the temple, the, the senior leaders in the temple. They're amazed at his wisdom already. Um, he's already getting some concept of of things because his parents said, "Where were you?" He said, "I have to be about my father's business." He's already getting an understanding. Then he completely disappears. So from 12 years old, so from less than 2 to 12, we have nothing. From 12 to 30, we have absolutely nothing. Um, Now, is that because there was nothing significant about Jesus' life, or is that because in that time, he was actually growing Increasing in wisdom and stature. This is what the Bible says. In Luke chapter 2 verse 52, Jesus grew, increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and men. You can only increase in something that you didn't formerly have. Okay? And he increased in wisdom and in stature. In other words, there was a process that was engaged, uh, of which the greater part was private, to Jesus and his life that we have been given no window into. Much like the majority of our lives are operated in a private window, not a public stage, where the major issues of our life are taking place. And then we burst onto the scene and there is some expression of what we've learned, who we've become, who we are, but there is a process taking place in the background. So my point on this is that Jesus was not created at 30 years of age and unleashed upon the world. There was a process of development, a process of growing. Therefore, my conclusion is this, that to be incarnational, like Jesus, because remember, the Word became flesh. Incarnational, the Word became flesh. To be like Jesus, we actually have been given the same liberty, which is to grow and to learn and to experiment, and to become, and uh, ultimately to hopefully ourselves find our place like Jesus did, where at his baptism, his identity is secure. Now, he's already got some insight onto it, because at 12 years of age, he says, I've got to be about my father's business. But at 30 years of age, when he's baptized, it's like there's this moment where his identity is secured. He knows who he is, he knows who God is, and boom, all of a sudden, some, some pretty amazing stuff starts to emerge. But that's not the consequence of his baptism. That's the consequence of all the 30 years as well leading up to his baptism. So it wasn't that all of a sudden, you know, touch and he's got it and now it's, it's miracles. It's the issue that he had to come to that place of realization and understanding. So my, my own view is that Jesus was not born with an inherent... Um, understanding of who he was and who the father was to him but it was something that as a human taking on human flesh like you and I he was not advantaged in any way Um, Paul writing to the Philippians says he laid aside his every 
vestige or every garment, every, every cell of, God, of godliness, he laid that aside. So when he came as a baby, he came as a baby just like you and just like me. Granted, he's, the Holy Spirit was the seed that seeded Mary's womb, but he came just like you and I. So, so we can't underestimate um, this idea of journey and growing and from baby to maturity and, and within that, um, hopefully all of us coming to the kind of encounter with God where we become secure about our identity and about the, the character and nature of the Father and then we minister out of that. Um, I would also add there that my, my current belief is and, and has been de- developing for some time that most of the church as we know it today would be uncomfortable with Jesus' presence and ministry, okay? It's easy for us to think we're Christians, so if Jesus was here, um, you know, it'd be, we'd invite him to speak Sunday. Jesus is here. Jesus is going to speak Sunday. Um, but you've got to put this into, into some, some kind of context, which is the religious leaders of the day, who we must be careful not to assume that they were evil and wicked people, because uh, by and large they weren't. Um, but they had become something from their distortion of the truth that they once had. So these are the people who are the descendants of the process that comes through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and the journeyings of the children of Israel and who are looking for the Messiah to come, but then they find him incredibly uncomfortable because he doesn't fit the, the model that they see as as, as church. Now, I, I would suggest to you that we would have the same problem with Jesus today. Even we might have the same problem. I think we're pretty liberated and, um, and, and forthcoming on those things, but uh, we might even be shocked at Jesus. So, so the real, one of the impacts of Jesus' life was shock. I mean, the community was shocked. They, they, they couldn't, they couldn't, evaluate and equate how this could possibly be Messiah. Uh, he was so, he was, he was because of the traditions he was raised in, willing to comply with the process like going to the synagogue. But actually, outside of that, it just seemed he was extremely contrary to what what then would have been, Chris has used this phrase many times, the common narrative. So we're also then beholden to have some kind of desire to find this radical Jesus. The reason I say we should have some kind of desire, because any other Jesus is a Jesus of your own imagination. He's a Jesus that we have manufactured through church systems, through empirical leadership, through, through corporate models, So we finish up with a God and a Jesus who was actually, instead of the church being formed by him, he has become formed by the church. Now, I am deeply and utterly convicted and convinced that 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 is the case and that we have all been guilty and I've been part of that. I've been part of that bandwagon that has done that. I, um, I have no qualms saying that 
some of the stuff that I was teaching 10, 15, I mean, I'll be 25 years in senior leadership here on in um, 4th of July. Um, stuff that I was teaching 20 years ago was done with all integrity and sincerity, and I believed it with all my heart, um, and so I, I don't think it was wrong for those reasons. It was right because it was the passion, it was the purpose we were looking to serve God, but I wouldn't preach that to you now. Um, some of that stuff, if you said, well, you said this back then, Anth, I'd say, well, just forget it, because... I might have believed that now, but I don't believe that. I, don't, I might have believed that then, but I don't believe that now. Um, now, see, in the context of empirical or corporate church, you can't do that because it's like, no, wait a minute, this is, this could upset the whole flow of the company, the, the empire. But if if you're if you're in an organic and incarnational environment, then that is going to happen. Um, so our conclusions that, that we come to about God, about church, about worship, all these things, we have every entitlement to do that because it's called incarnational. It's called a system. It's called growth. And um, what it also allows you to do, which, which corporately and empirically you can't do, it allows you to not just contextualize practice because because anybody can contextualize practice. For example, you know, well, a lot of churches now, the majority of, of modern outreaching style churches will be dark with blinds and lights and screens, just like we've got. You can mimic that. Um, you know, that's, that's not the issue. Um, the issue is not whether we fit with, 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 um, with our culture, that we have a, a cultural context in that sense, but it's that in our, our expression of belief we have a cultural context, that we are not afraid to wrestle with issues of um, creation and atheism and, and, you know, for me, a big one, the cross, the blood of Jesus, the, which I, I still believe is powerful and I have not lost my faith and I've lo not lost my trust in Jesus and I still believe he's the only way of salvation. But I just think some of the things that I thought was around that, I don't think anymore. I think it's actually better, okay? Not worse, better. So, so I'm saying all this because we've got to build this, some of the stuff we're going to talk about um, builds on this process. So, So... So incarnational is a process of, of becoming. Um, so what I want to do on here again is talk about something I've talked about before but with some more detail and then we're going to go into some areas that we've not, we've not really wrestled and explained much. Some of them we won't get to tonight but we'll just go as far as we can. Um, I talked to you some time ago about... about um, what I call the true gospel. And um, how Paul wrote to Timothy, a, a verse again that depends which lens you're using, how you interpret it, but, but um, uh, 2 Timothy 2 verse 15, um, Paul says to Timothy, be diligent, a few more words, da -da 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 -da, be diligent, rightly dividing the word of truth. Um, I was always introduced to that in the context of 
how you interpret the Bible, okay? So you look at verse, of course, the problem was the people who were teaching me that had already decided what it was that they believed about any given verse. So rightly dividing the word of truth meant that we have rightly divided this truth and you have to believe this, which wasn't, wasn't the point, I don't think, that Paul was making to Timothy because um, Paul's point, the, the Greek in there is to cut as with a sharp, blade so so it's not about oh we've got this verse here and this verse here so let's have a look at them and see how we interpret them it's much more severe than that it's like it's like it's like he's saying Timothy you need to take a blade and you need to cut you need to make a cut because some things are going to be on one side of this line and some things are going to be on the other side of the line and um, we're going to divide truth from not truth. Again, I use the term not truth because some of the not truth sounds awfully like truth. Um, but it is only truth in its own context. It's not truth in the context of the gospel fully. Okay? So we're going to look at some of, those, um, some of those issues now. Again, I've mentioned this to you before, but uh, in a good process of learning, I want you to have got it in your spirit and be ready to do something with it. I've quoted to you before Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation from 1517, said it seems a small matter to mingle the law and the gospel, works and faith, but it creates more mischief than a man's mind can conceive. So, um, one of the words we need here, because I think Martin Luther was right, is mischief. Right, now that, that's important because I've come to believe this, that, 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 that men and women have acted mischievously to support a message that is a mixture of two systems that are supposed to be kept apart. So let's start building our little drawing. Luther talked about, and we'll put them on this side, about... Um, uh, talked about the law and the gospel. Works and faith. Okay. So Luther's point being that if we try to mix those which, which to some degree all of us here um, knowingly or unknowingly, depending how bright you are, um, have been fed a message that is a mixture of those things, okay? Because law is all about right and wrong, and works is all about how you activate a life that lives by the principles of right and wrong. Namely, you will be rewarded for doing good, you'll be punished for doing bad. On the other hand, the gospel is very different. Now, just a word on gospel. I'm glad that Martin Luther didn't use the word grace there. Because this is not a battle between law. You understand about law. So a lot of that's based in the law of Moses, what we know as the Ten Commandments. Okay, You've got to live right, you've got to do right. 
The moment you tell somebody, if you want to live for God, you've got to live right and you've got to do right, you've just told them work for your salvation, okay? Now, it's good to live right and do right, but the gospel's got absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with that, and that's the point. So, I like the fact he didn't use grace here, we use gospel, because the battle is not whether we can find a place of grace, undeserved favor. This fight is actually for the gospel itself, okay? It's the gospel itself, and what we understand the gospel to be, and that all of, everything that regards to the gospel actually works by faith. I believe that faith is the determined placement of belief and trust in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Now, of course, we understand something about gospel, which is that gospel means good news. So, this was never good news. And you can't, there's nothing you can do to make this good news. Even if you say, oh, we're condemned under the law, but you can bring a sacrifice and you're all right before God, until when? Because if the law's still active, every time you break the law, you've got the same problem. So, so, Paul says to Timothy, you have to have a line that divides these two. In other words, they do not mix and should not mix, and you've got to keep them separate. We've got to be bold enough to know what's over here and what's over there and how we keep the two apart. So, um, in this process of mischief, we invented three words. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm revising here because this will all help us as we develop the story. We invented three words. And those three words were gospel, church, and hell. These are three invented words. Now, I know we've got the word gospel here. I could have written good news, but we're just going to use this because at least we know, we know what it is. But we're going to break it down a little bit here. Gospel means good news. So the point there, because we've covered this in detail before, why not just call it good news? Well, because if you call it gospel, we can tell people things that are neither good nor news and they've got no idea that it's not the gospel. We can get away with it if we call it gospel. If you say, I want to tell you some good news, you've been separated from God by your sin and you're going to hell unless... That's not really that good a news. Now, to say there is a righteousness that has already been given on your behalf and you're forgiven is a very different matter. So gospel was an invented word because of the mischief, okay? We're mischievously trying to make it work. Church was an invented word from the Greek word ekklesia, um, which was a gathering of ordinary people called together in one place to make legislative decisions on just about everything. We've talked about this in depth. That the qualification for the ecclesia was that you were ordinary. Sounds like Jesus. Hence the reason in Matthew 16 verse 17, Jesus didn't say, I will build my temple. He didn't say, I'll build my synagogue. Both words that he could have chosen if he actually, A, wanted the people to connect it to their current religious condition. If he wanted it to represent a religious practice. Um, but he didn't. He chose a Greek word, ecclesia, that had been around for five centuries before because that better described 
what he was going to build. He was not looking to build a church. This word comes from the Greek word kairidikon. The Greek word kairidikon is nowhere in the original text of the Bible. It was introduced by a guy called Theodore Betzer in 1536, who was part of the writing of the Geneva Bible um, around the time of John Calvin. And uh, he introduced this word because he thought we're doing a favor here, people will understand. But you see, the word charidicon means a religious meeting place. So if you were to take his translation, Jesus said, I'll build my religious meeting place and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When you put it in that terms, it doesn't sound quite right, does it? But our concept of church has become more akin to Theodore Betz's thing that we have become a religious meeting place, right? than it has to Jesus' original idea, which had no religious connotation and no global application. Okay? Now, there were ecclesias all over the Greek world, but the object wasn't, let's get ecclesias everywhere we can put them. The object was, if ecclesia works, it will spread. And the idea of the early church was, this works, it spread. Okay? So, so that was an invented word, so we could get away with institutionalizing what should have been organic. Of course, the other invented word which we've talked about was hell, which, which is an invented word because the Bible uses four words. It uses, um, it uses Sheol in the Old Testament. It uses Hades in the New Testament, which really mean the grave. Um, Jesus' most common word was, was um, uh, Gehenna, which was the city garbage dump. Everybody knew where Gehenna was. It wasn't down there somewhere. Um, it was a place of rotting carcasses and fires and horrible... They, they understood, so, so there was a context to it. Of course, the third one um, is um, Tartarus, which is only used once in the Bible that relates to, um, to Greek mythology. But these three invented words became part of that mischief, okay? And um, this baby here particularly has been one of the key tools within the mischief um, to control people for generations. And uh, I understand that the issue of, well, you know, I don't want to save people from hell. If that's the point, yes, we do. But I'm no longer convinced that that's the point, right? From, I don't think we're saving people from anything. I think we're saving people to something, okay? Not from something, to something, okay? And that something is not connected to law, not connected to works, but it's connected to faith and the gospel, which is a righteousness that he's given. So, as we build our story here, um, let me write something here. It goes all the way back to, uh, to Genesis, okay? So, on this side, basically, everything that happens flows from tree, tree of knowledge... I'm not gonna. I'm just gonna write K, K of G and E. Right, tree of the knowledge. Remember, two trees in the garden. So when Paul said to Timothy, rightly dividing the word of truth, I've told you this before, but again, because of our education process, we have to hit this again. The Bible is full of twos, right from the beginning. Two trees, two sons two sacrifices, 
two, 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 all the time, you know, uh, all the way through into Jesus' parables, two men will be in a field, two this, two that, two the other. Why? Why is two mentioned so many times? Because you're supposed to divide, put a dividing line in the twos, because one of them is truth, and one of them is not truth, okay? So that's why there's all those twos in the Bible. Now, of course, it starts way back here in the garden, Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, over here we can put tree of life. Okay, here's the basic difference. What happens if you eat from the tree of life? You get life. What happens if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You get the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, how do you define life? In some ways, you can't define life. Life is a flow of eternity that touches people. You, you don't create life. You can't create life in you. You can't do it. So, so life has to come from somewhere else. The source of life comes from somewhere else. So while ever we're eating at this tree, it means our life is being drawn from somewhere else. Okay. However, this one, what this does, it fills you with something that you do. This fills you with something you don't do because you can't produce life, you can't create life. But this gives you something that you do. Oh, okay. What is it that this produces then in us? It produces our ability to, to make a definition between what's right and what's wrong, which sounds really good because that's part of the mischief. It must be really good to know clearly what's right and what's wrong. Here was what God's comment on that. I think God's commentary on, on that scenario is good. Here's what God said to the, the first humans. Don't eat of the tree. Don't even touch it. Because in the day that you do, I'll use the literal Hebrew, in dying you will die. So, so the problem becomes here, in dying you will die. So now... The problem is, I've got to write it down here, okay? Probably won't be able to see it on the screen, but what I'm writing is death, right? So we now have introduced into the equation this thing called death. Now, the question is, what is death? Um, death is not the thing that, that occurs when our heart stops beating and we stop breathing. Now, that is death, but it's not what, God was talking about when he talked to the humans because he used the term in dying you will die or in other words you can be alive but have death operating within you okay my personal view on physical death is that it was a grace from God because if we were going to live forever by eating at the tree of life with all this nonsense going on, that would be a curse, not a blessing. So God says, okay, I'm going to bless you with a gift. You won't live forever here, okay? You'll only live forever when, when you catch this back over here. But physically, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you with, 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 with your eyes closing, your heart stopping, and you stopping breathing. Because trust me, you wouldn't want to go on like this forever. Death was a blessed. Death was a, a gift of grace. That kind of death. When he said the number of a man's years shall be, that was a blessing, that was a grace, okay? 
And uh, likewise, the truth is for us, when we understand this, we need not fear this death because we've already been come from death to life. Okay, we, 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 we'll talk about what that means in, in a little moment when you see what I have to put on this line. So, a tree of the knowledge of, of, of good and evil. So, right and wrong um, are all on this side. Right and wrong functions in an environment of law and it operates through a process of works. What you don't do, what you do do. What you do offer when you offer it. How you must come and offer it. When you must come and offer it. All the things that you begin to read in scripture of God saying, okay, you want to see, see how messy this is? So if you, if you like to read stuff like Leviticus, in there you read the Levitical law. Which has, which has laws for menstruation and, you know, everything is in there. It's like, give me a break, okay? It, it was all God's efforts to say, okay, you want to see how intricate this goes? If you want to live this side, it, it's a mess, okay? It's a mess. Don't go there, it's a mess. But most of us live this side. Now, the problem is that the mischief has tried to take this, gospel and faith, and mix it with this so that we have a mixed system when actually we are still under condemnation because we still eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and basically what rules us is death, fear of death, which of course then we fit into that stuff like hell, you're in danger of hell, you know, doing right by the church and then the gospel rather than being good news, being something that just, is a, it just masks this process, okay? So I've told you before, Things like, if I have to say sorry in order to be forgiven, any forgiveness that I am given is a retribution, not a removal. Because I said sorry, so you forgave me because I said sorry, which means you didn't forgive me. I was sorry, you're okay, your debt's paid. You felt terrible. You think I owed you something. I owed you. How many of you heard the term? He, he, she owes me an apology. Meaning, I will not forgive you unless I have the apology. Which means that you're not forgiving anything because the apology is appeasing your wrath. Do you understand what I'm saying? But on this side of life, we have forgiveness freely given which means that God does not need a sorry from me for his heart to flow in absolute total forgiveness towards me. The generosity of his heart and spirit has never changed, okay? This side tells you that he does. And that there's things that what you must do to fix that. This side tells you it's never changed and what he has done to make you know that it was already fixed from the beginning, Okay? Of course, this is a funny gospel because it's like this brings you to the seventh day of creation. It's finished. It brings you to the end of the cross. It's finished. This one says it started. So my experience was come to Jesus, be forgiven. It wasn't finished. It was just starting then. Because all the things that I felt I had to do and that I needed to be in, you've got to uphold the testimony. Now, there is a good way to live. There's a right way to live. There's a considerate way to live. 
But it's got nothing whatsoever to do with salvation. Nothing. This is a free gift. It's the gift of righteousness. It's a love that is given regardless of anything, unconditionally. And it's a forgiveness that is not given as a result of anything, but was given in spite of nothing. So I have to argue now and say, my view is that the whole world stands forgiven. So here's, here's the, another mischief, okay? This side will start the Bible story in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is the story of what is commonly known in church as the fall. It's when Adam and Eve eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we are then told they fell from grace. Really? Then it wasn't grace. How can you fall from undeserved favor if you didn't deserve it in the first place? How can you not deserve it because of something that you did? It's a misnomer. You cannot fall from grace. You can fall into grace. So my view is, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree, they didn't fall from grace, they fell into grace. And so the story of the Bible now, actually, this side will tell you is here. I'm going to propose to you, actually, the story is over here. That actually there's a story that says they fell into grace... And everything that happened was an act of grace to try and bring them back to this, to life, to life, to life, to life, okay? So, this side, the Bible begins where it's supposed to begin, in Genesis chapter 1. So, here's the basic concept you and I were fed. If you're not aware of this, I'm making you aware of it because you might not realize it, but you have been fed this. Raised in a Christian country around any kind of church, you have been fed a Genesis 3 start. This is, this is what John Calvin, um, in, in the time of the Reformation, called it. And it was an echo from Augustine in the mid-300s. And he called it, I'm going to write it on here because this is, he called it the doctrine of original... Sin. How many of you have heard that term? But how many of you know the book of Genesis doesn't start in Genesis chapter 3? It starts in Genesis chapter 1. You can't just randomly decide, oh, we're going to formulate all this from Genesis chapter 3. You have to say, no, we're going to form from Genesis chapter 1. So I'm going to propose a different beginning point here for our conversation. See? Original blessing. Man is not the victim of original sin. Man is the recipient of original blessing. And what we see in this gospel is that the original blessing that was always there from the beginning was being restored and refreshed and reinstituted and redeclared to bring us to a place of life. So, the mischief is, let's tell everybody that your original condition is one of sin. 
when we break the mischief, we tell people, your beginning condition is one of blessing. He blessed them and said, no, he cursed them, he blessed them. So this comes before this. Now, did something happen here? Yes, something did happen here. But you can't start the story there just because something happened in chapter 3. You have to still start it in chapter 1. So we say, whatever happened here, we will find the solution to it, not by thinking around this, but by thinking around this. Because this is not going to give us a clear picture of God's response. This is going to give us a clear picture of God's response. So we are going to come to different conclusions, even about what the cross was accomplishing, what was happening at the cross, if we start here, than if we start here. My job is to get you thinking all the time on this side because there's no mixture, right? So that's, that's all on this side, okay? So um, let's put another couple of things on our, um, on our, uh, on our drawing. Um, there's a, a great verse. I'll throw a few verses in here as we go. Galatians 2.21. Uh, Paul said this. It's a real powerful statement he said I do not set aside the grace of God which again by the very language suggests that we can be guilty of setting aside the grace of God I propose to you that living here you have to set aside the grace of God so here's the kind of things that you'll hear ha all this grace stuff is just a license to sin so people won't say, it's a way to experience the original blessing. Oh, well, it's just a license to sin. Um, I had a letter when, when we were dealing with some of our stuff from a, um, a national leader that said, grace is wonderful, but we have to be really careful about grace. I still have the letter to this day. We have to be careful about grace. In other words, what he was saying was, um, grace must never extend to the place where it totally rescinds all condemnation and guilt over the wrongdoer and counts them as if they had never sinned. It's really what he was saying. Um, and yet, um, most Bible commentators will describe justification to you in this way, because Martin Luther talked about a man is justified by faith. They will say justified means to be just as if I'd never sinned. So how can you be careful about grace if the word of grace is to make us just as if we never sinned? It means that here's how it would look in practice. Okay, woman caught in the act of adultery. Um, her accusers are correct. The law has been broken. They throw her before Jesus and say, in Moses' law, this person should be stoned. They're absolutely right. She has done what she's done. In Moses' law, she should be stoned. If Jesus was living here, here's what he'd have to say. Woman, I feel really sorry for you, and I forgive you, but so that righteousness can be seen to be done, I have to let these guys stone you. See, here's the other foolish statement that mixes these two. Yes, but righteousness must not only be done, but righteousness must be seen to be done. How many of you have heard that? Okay. So Jesus then would have to say, woman, you are forgiven, God loves you, 
but so that righteousness can be seen to be done, I have to let these people stone you. I'm of you, that's not the gospel. But that's what happens here. And that's what brothers and sisters in Christ are going through under this system. Or you forgive them, but we have to stone you. Um, I have moved away from the days when I thought, I never thought it was fully appropriate, but you kind of think, well, if it's what has to be done. For example, and this still happens in many churches, um, a young girl gets pregnant. I mean, I've been there. Some of you have been there. Standard approach, okay, sweetheart, you need to stand in front of the congregation, confess your sin, tell them what you've done, tell them you're not going to do it again. In other words, shame, 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 shame. Guilt, condemnation, shame, shame, shame. We expose you. It's the same thing. Righteousness must be seen to be done. No. I like Jesus' approach. He just writes a few things in the sand, gets rid of all the accusers, and says, where are your accusers? I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Suddenly, we're on this side. That's original blessing. Here's how I see you, blessed. Here's how they see you, sinner. So everything that must happen here must be, you are a sinner, so we have to respond to your sin. Everything here says you are blessed, so we have to respond to your blessing. Everything here is harsh. Everything here is kind. Here, it seems like lots is being done to sort this out. Here, it looks like nothing's being done to sort this out because there's nothing to sort out. Okay? Do you see what I'm saying? And why there is a problem. Likewise, the other good example would be the, um, the story of the father and the sons that we mostly know as the prodigal son, whose father gives him everything he needs to go out and when the boy comes back what happens the father doesn't say okay son until you have earned my trust of which I saw some eye rolling going on in a meeting the other day that we happen to have about earning trust until you've earned my trust until I've seen that you're truly repentant until I know that in your heart you're attached back to me uh, you can live in the cow shed and we'll kind of ultimately try and introduce you back to the family and the house. That's not what happened, is it? What does the father do? Throws a robe on him, puts a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, kills the fatted calf. And as a celebration, my son was lost and he's found. He was dead and he's alive. So over here, everything functions from the premise of original blessing. Son... You're blessed, you were always blessed, I've never seen you as anything but blessed, and I'm glad you're home. Let's party. On this side, everything is seen through original sin. Is this making sense? Do you see now why this is mischievous and damaging? But it looks like truth, because that's how we think, so it looks like truth. But I'm saying it's kind of true, it's the way we think, but it's not truth. Okay, okay let's put another... Another one or two more things on here just, um, just before we... Um, right, let me put this on. So, everything here rotates around right and wrong. Now, I know we put some nice terminology on that. 
you know, uh, so we use nice phrases that are stupid. Like, well, you know, you just gotta love the sinner, but hate the sin. A stupid phrase. If you love the sinner, you love the sinner. They come as a package. They come as a whole. Whatever you think of their sin, once you start hating something, that will transfer in how you deal with the person because you can't separate them then from their behavior. Another point on those two illustrations we gave. Um, the boy was still son to the father. My son. He didn't say this boy, this, this retro, reprobate. He said, my son. Jesus didn't call the woman an adulteress, he called a woman. So they said, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In other words, this woman is an adulterer. Jesus said, no, she's a woman. So this side identifies people by their behavior. Right? It identifies them by their behavior, by their sin. Over here, we don't identify people by their sin, we identify them as a person. Here we've got a person, here we've got a sin. Oh, you know, so-and-so's a drunk. Maybe so, but what you just did is identified them. No, what's the name, who are they? Right? So Jesus calls a woman where he are accusers. They call her adulterer. All of this I'm trying to show you is how this works and manifests in how we begin to think and how we look at things. This side, the truth is, you love the sinner and hate your own sin. This side, you love the sinner but hate their sin. Because all your focus is never on you. On this side. Remember the Pharisees? All the focus was on everybody else what they were doing, never on what they were, which is why Jesus said, you guys, you put burdens on people's back, you point the finger, and you're like empty tombs, you're like rotting carcasses. You stink. Why? Because on this side, it's always love the sinner, hate their sin. This side is love the sinner, hate your own sin. On this side, you love people, and you wish you could serve them better. You wish you weren't as incapable and as unable. You recognize your own weaknesses. You recognize the times when you've done stuff that but for the grace of God, you would never stand. So when you're here, it all rests in the blessing. So you live in that as well. So this side is all about right and wrong. But on this side, it's all about, let me write this on here. It's all about a revelation of Righteousness. 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 I think that's right. Righteousness is not a behavior. Righteousness is a revelation. Right and wrong is a behavior. Righteousness is not a behavior. Righteousness is a revelation. Right and wrong is a behavior. Righteousness is a condition. Okay? You have been made righteous. Got nothing to do with doing right or wrong or not doing right or wrong. You have been made righteous. So it's a revelation of righteousness here. It's right and wrong over here. Right. A few more minutes and then we'll leave the rest until 
a more suitable time. Okay, so let me, let me now just lay the foundation for where we go after this. I believe there are three datum points on this line. Um, now, let me explain datum. Datum is a reference point from which you take accurate measurement, okay? So, um, on the end of this building, on the cornerstone over here, outside, um, you'll see a little mark. It looks like, it looks like that, okay? It's a datum point. There, there are records in the National Office that record that datum point and will tell you exactly how high that is above sea level. Exactly. They're all over the country. You find them everywhere in the world, a datum point. It's a point that somebody has measured all the way back to sea level and can now tell you, even though you're miles away, this is, you can measure from this, and your measurement from this will be accurate. So I believe there are three datum points on this line that give a correct understanding of the gospel, and also that keep the line in place and that help us correctly divide the word of truth from the word of not truth. In other words, if you can get a handle on the things that I'm about to write on here, just three datum points, you will be able to establish this line, okay? Because it runs through the datum points. And then we'll talk a lot more detail about that. Here's the three datum points, okay? First one is creation. Now, that's got nothing to do with the science of where the earth came from. By creation, what I mean is that something is made, in essence, out of nothing. Okay? It's creation. The bigger lesson of creation is, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, here's how creation starts. In the beginning, in the beginning, God, it's actually God's, it's a partnership, Father, Son, and Spirit, created on a Cosmic scale, okay? But how does it start in the beginning? We, we get connected back to that in John chapter 1 in the New Testament where John picks that same phrase and says, in the beginning, but he says, was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So creation is about beginnings. Creation is about beginnings. Everything about God is beginnings, not endings, the problem is, once you get into all this stuff, everything is based on endings. Where will you go when you die? That's an ending. It's not, how are you going to live? Where will you go when you die? Okay. And then, of course, we start to interpret Scripture through that model. So, so things like what some of you will know as the rapture, the church being magically taken out of the world, um, is actually an idea that was not even thought of until the late 1800s by a guy called J.N. Darby of the Plymouth Brethren, who I presume were brethren that came from Plymouth, but he was in America, so anyway, um, who was a 
friend of a guy called C.I. Schofield, who some of you older people will have been exposed to the Schofield Reference Bible. Um, I could say burn it, but that's up to you. Um, Schofield and Darby together introduced two mischiefs into the church. One of them was called, I won't go too deep on this, one of them was called dispensationalism. That there was a dispensation of, 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 um, of, of, of man and a dispensation of law and a dispensation of this, that and the other. Complete nonsense in my view. And also introduced the idea that the church would be raptured, taken out of the world while, while God set about his business of annihilating all those other filthy, stinking human beings who hadn't prayed the right prayer. Think about it. So by their concept, literally, Hitler looks like an angel. Because he might have gassed six million Jews plus disabled people, etc., etc. But we are now in this model talking about a God who will do that to billions, okay? Some of you know something doesn't add up there. Something doesn't quite sound right, does it? It's because it's not right. So, anyway, I, I go off on the side with all this information about Jay and Darby. And, and uh, um, what I'm saying to you there is that it's drifted away from this. Creation is about beginnings. Beginnings, beginnings, beginnings. God is always about beginnings. He comes on the scene and says, let's begin something. It's all about bringing life. It's all about reinvigorating. It's all about filling and moving. So here's the middle word because we're running out of time. Middle word on here is incarnation. If you know these three things and we can get you to understand them, we're in good shape for keeping this line. Incarnation is not Mary giving birth to Jesus. That's nativity, okay? That's the nativity. <clears throat> now, this was at work in the nativity, but incarnation means this, the word made flesh. In the beginning was the word, John said, and the word was made flesh. In, the word was incarnate in human flesh, and it says the word was made flesh, dwelled among us, and um, it says that, we beheld the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in the incarnation, we have a revelation of grace and truth. So whenever the word is made flesh, it should show up as grace and truth. If it doesn't, it's not an incarnation, okay? That same scripture says the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I often like to point out there that if the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, it means that it didn't say that the law, law and truth was given through Moses. It just says law, because the law was never the truth about you or the truth about God. Grace is the truth about God. Okay, Incarnation, word made flesh. Let me give you the last one, then we can finish. The last one down here is uh, this baby, resurrection. Okay, resurrection, life from the dead. 
These are the three pointers. Now you say, well, shouldn't the crucifixion be in there? Answer, no. We're going to talk about the crucifixion next time we come together. That's in here. Okay? The crucifixion is not one of the datum points. See, the whole issue of the gospel culminating in Jesus. Let me give you one little thought here, okay? Uh, Revelation chapter 10 says that it talks about Jesus who was the lamb slain from the creation of the world or, or in some versions from before the foundation of the world. You're familiar with that verse? Say, so, well, how could he be? Well, so I'm going to put this up here because it's going to be important later. Lamb. So when did Jesus die? Did he die here or did he die here? Because scripture says he's the lamb slain from before the foundation of the earth. So when did he die? Let, let me propose something to you. Um, when you see a star in the sky, what are you seeing? Well, I'll tell you what you're seeing. For example, they use terms like that star is a hundred light years away from the earth, which literally means that if you travel at 1,000, which is the speed of light, 1,760 miles a second, is that it? Yeah. No, no, it's 186,000 miles a second, speed of light, okay? It means that if you travel at the speed of light, that light of that star, if it's 100 light years away, takes 100 years to reach here. Now, that's weird, isn't it? Because you're like, I'm, I swear it's there. I can see it. For goodness sake, look, it's there. The wonder is that you're actually seeing something that happened 100 years ago. Isn't that weird? So most of the stars that we see in the sky, we're not actually seeing. We are seeing them as they were hundreds of years ago, which is fascinating, isn't it? Because of it, the light from that event is traveling through space, and by the time it reaches us, watch this, by the time it reaches us, we're actually seeing something that already occurred. Now, that's a mystery, and I'll, I can't talk to you about that tonight, but... The cross is something that already occurred, and I'm going to explain that to you next time we come together. That's something for you to think about. Three things, creation, incarnation, resurrection. All of these three are actually the same thing in a different form. See, incarnation is a beginning, creation is a beginning, resurrection is a beginning. Resurrection is life from the dead, Incarnation is life from the dead. Creation is life from the dead. Think about it. The baby in the womb is the same as a body in the tomb. Each one needs a resurrection moment. The baby comes out of the womb. The body comes out of the tomb. The earth comes out of the darkness. The womb of vision. The womb of revelation. Resurrection. Coming live from the dead is the same as this, is the same as this. All these three have exactly the same elements, just a different manifestation. Creation, incarnation, resurrection. Now, last thought on this, and then we have to shut up because we, we've got enough time. Um, resurrection was the message of the early church. 
that there were approximately, depending which numbers you re read, and this was shocking when I read this, there were over 20 messiahs in Judea at the time of Jesus. 20 people saying, I'm the Messiah. Crucifixions were commonplace. If you said, Jesus is our Messiah and he was crucified, it's like, yeah, you mean like the other Messiahs and this guy from there and that guy from there, they were crucified as well. No power in the message. Because there were lots of Messiahs and crucifixions were to a penny. But resurrections weren't. And there was only one group of people going around saying, He is risen. He is risen from the dead. He's alive. And that was these early group that we now know as Christian that were those early disciples. Their message was Christ is risen. Our Savior has come alive. Our gospel is not follow a cause and die. Our gospel is life from the dead. That no tomb can hold him, no grave can keep him. He is a grave-busting savior that we have. Incarnation was, you can't keep him out of the world. He who is outside the world is going to come into the world. And whenever he shows up, the word made flesh, you see the glory of the Father. When Christ shows up in you, the world sees the glory of the Father. Just like it did with Jesus. And likewise with the creation. All of this ties together. Those are the three datum points that are so critical in the whole context of how we put this line in place. So if we can understand these three things and we'll fill in the blanks, we start to understand how to have this solid line and so that all the time we live over here. We live under original blessing in a revelation of righteousness. We live in the tree of life knowing that we are already passed from death to life, that we are resurrected people, that we are incarnational because Christ is in us, the hope of glory, and that creation, beginnings, is our inheritance. We get up every day and every day is a beginning. We've gone evening to morning. We're not the other way because we don't live here. Oh, right, we've said enough. We've got... We'll, I'll help you try to understand um, some of the issues then about the role that blood plays in here. Um, what's interesting is to understand this, you have to come all the way back here to Abraham. If you understand Abraham, you'll understand this. One of the problems that we have in trying to understand the cross and therefore coming up with all kinds of theories is because we don't understand, you have to first understand Abraham before you can understand the cross. When you understand this, you understand this. And when you understand this, you realize that's not the whole point. This is the point. This is the point. Resurrection, incarnation, creation. And that working and being released in us and revealed through us. So I bless you and you've listened wonderfully to my... Uh, uh, little ramblings and we'll talk a bit about when the gospel started and all that next time so hopefully I don't have to redraw this need to put cling film around it thank you you've been very very uh, good listeners I appreciate it
Thanks for listening. You might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again. Thanks again.